Our model of democracy, underpinned by human rights and the rule of law, is being challenged across the globe. Human rights are our ultimate tool to help societies grow in freedom. And we must have the foresight and courage to imagine what might happen if we don't act now. And instead, please, create the world as it should be. Young and old, male and female, rich and poor, from all creeds, races and tribes, they are the heroes of this story. Welcome to Intersections, where human rights and democracy meet. I'm Marty Flax, Director of the Human Rights Initiative and Kosravi Chair in Principled Internationalism at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Each episode, we'll tackle current events with activists and policymakers at the center of efforts to promote human rights and build stronger, more sustainable democracies. In this episode of Intersections, we discuss efforts to protect indigenous people's rights, particularly in light of new developments in the energy and extractive sectors. 80% of the planet's biodiversity and a majority of the world's remaining natural resources, including minerals, fresh water, and potential energy sources are found within the territories of the 370 million indigenous peoples around the world. Pressure on indigenous rights as a result of demand for land for large-scale development is nothing new, but the explosion of energy and mining agriculture and other large-scale land projects in recent years has put increasing pressure on indigenous people's rights, and we'll talk about some of those cases today. Under a growing body of international law, states and companies that hope to exploit indigenous-owned or managed land are expected to obtain the free prior and informed consent of those communities prior to development. In the United States, these issues have been in the news in recent years due to controversies over oil pipelines, as well as the appointment of Deb Holland as the first Native American cabinet secretary. In other countries, in Latin America, Africa, Asia, and elsewhere, we've seen indigenous peoples go to bat to protect their lands from large-scale projects, whether that's wind projects in the Yucatan or large-scale agriculture projects in the Philippines. And they've paid a steep price for doing so, as we'll talk about today. We're joined for today's episode to talk about all this with two activists and representatives from indigenous groups in the United States and the Philippines. Joan Carling is an indigenous rights activist and environmental defender from the Philippines and global director of Indigenous Peoples Rights International. She's also the co-convener of the Indigenous Peoples Major Group for Sustainable Development. Janine Yazi is Southwest Regional Director for NDN Collective an indigenous-led organization dedicated to building indigenous power through organizing activism, philanthropy, grant-making, and capacity building. She also founded the first Navajo Nation community-led watershed program to support local control in the management of natural resources and has longed worked with Navajo communities to develop projects and programs that promote sustainability, environmental justice, and self-governance. Joanne, maybe over to you. Tell us a little bit about how you started working on these issues and what you're doing right now. Yeah, I mean, it's, I started uh, about this issue when I, I visited the, the, the tribal areas who stood their ground against the construction of dams. And that's when I fully realized that this, the, the, how committed they are in terms of protect their land and resources. So that for me, it, it, that has inspired me to work on, on, on this issue and especially realizing that 
that, that they have a different way of valuing things. I mean, these tribes, and yet they are being discriminated and treated inferior, which is just not fair. So taking on that, that issue that we, we need to, to raise the visibility of indigenous peoples and that they, they need not to be discriminated and their rights to be protected. So that's how I started. And now I'm working with the uh, Indigenous Peoples' Rights International. We're actually focusing on the issue of criminalization, violence and impunity uh, against uh, in Indigenous peoples. And of course, land rights is, is at the center of this. That, that's where criminalization is taking place, especially in countries where there is no legal recognition of, of, of land rights. Yeah, that'll be a really valuable contribution. I'm looking forward to reading that. Janine, tell us a little bit more about yourself and about Indian Collective. You know, like many Indigenous peoples, I was born into this work. I was born and raised in communities that were heavily impacted by the legacy of uranium mining in the Southwest United States, and particularly by the 1979 Church Rock uranium mill tilling spill, which was the largest um, spill in United States history. Uh, and so, you know, having to grow up with those impacts, my work began locally and organizing and learning about, you know, just the, the plethora of all of the bureaucratic barriers and political barriers that prevent our people from restoring our traditional life ways and practices to really, you know, going and, and going back to working at the international level, because my, my background, uh, my educational background is in international policy and human rights. And so I was really interested in the development of international standards that could then be used to help push back against domestic policies and laws to create the room we needed in order to breathe and to do the work that needed to be done in our communities. And so um, transitioning away from international work um, with International Indian Treaty Council, I, I came back home. Uh, and Indian Collective is an organization that invests in the self-determination of indigenous peoples and resources movement building, the defense of land, the development of regenerative and sustainable solutions, and decolonization of our, our practices and of uh, the systems that hold so much control over our lands, territories, and resources, and even our ability to imagine what an indigenous future, an indigenous-led uh, liberation looks like. And so, you know, those are all the perfect aspects of movement building that could really help center and defend indigenous worldviews and life ways and solutions. And so it was, it was almost like the dream job and opportunity to serve as their Southwest Regional Director. Joan, I want to start with you. In the last few years, it really feels like there's been some momentum and the tides have turned, uh, including the adoption of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and some big wins in court cases in a number of countries. Tell us where you see Indigenous Peoples' rights right now. Do you see progress on the international stage? Yes, there are progress and also alarming developments on, on the other side. So in, in relation to, for example, renewable energy, which, of course, we are supporting as part of the just transition. However, if, if this is going to cause land grabbing, it, it will uh, exacerbate uh, social injustice. And now everybody's talking about the shift, right, to renewable energy. But it's, it's again, business as usual. And that is a major threat to land grabs. But there are two important court decisions at the national level affirming the land rights of indigenous peoples, which sets a very good precedent and a warning to renewable energy companies. 
One is the case of, of uh, Tanzania, when the Supreme Court of, of Tanzania ruled that the windmill projects in Lake Turkana was in violation of the community land rights of the Turkana people, and thereby asking, directing the, the private companies to negotiate with the communities to provide them proper compensation for taking their lands. So that's one. Uh, the other one is the windmill in, in the north of Norway, where uh, the, the Sami people were against the, the, the windmill. They, they already declared their opposition because of the potential adverse impacts to their reindeer herding. But the government said, no, there will be no effect. So they went ahead. And so they filed a case in court and the court decision interestingly said that the windmill has violated the cultural rights of the Sami people because the way they manage their land and their culture is through reindeer herding. And that sets a precedent on two points. One is that the rights of indigenous peoples are not just under the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, but also in covenants. Like this one, the, the one that was mentioned was the Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. So this means that now courts, national courts, are using both the UN Declaration and other uh, human rights conventions affirming the rights of indigenous peoples to, to our lands. And this, I hope, will influence now how the renewable energy, as well as agribusiness and others, are going to engage with indigenous peoples in relation to our land. So that is uh, the, the positive side that, that I think is, is, is uh, very good. That's really interesting. Thanks, Joan. And, you know, Janine, I want to ask you a similar question, because in the United States, these issues have really been brought to the public's attention because of fights over oil pipelines, the Keystone Pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline. But as Joan points out, the expansion of renewable energy and of mining has also had a very significant impact on demand for land and on indigenous rights here in the United States. Tell us how the energy industry is affecting your work and indigenous rights here and how are indigenous groups in the United States responding? Are we also relying on these international treaties and principles or are we taking a more domestically focused approach? It's a big question. You know, the, one of the foundations of the development of this country was in amassing control over natural resources and the forced removal of many indigenous nations, um, some of them permanently from their traditional homelands and customary use areas, was facilitated in order to open up certain areas for mining and for extraction. And so that history is deeply rooted in our continued struggles as indigenous peoples for recognition, for land rights, and for our, our sovereign rights to, to self-determination and to build and manage our own future for ourselves. And so even when you look at, you know, the body of law that makes up federal Indian law here in the United States, you see that there's, there's so like, it's such a mess of policy and of regulations because so much of it has been developed around that foundation so that it like, you know, whatever advancements we have made for our rights doesn't truly threaten the mineral claims and the energy claims that have been staked on or near our territories. And so with the development of the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, um, you know, what we, what we saw is like a, a framework that has developed 
developed and introduced new language that has been important for our movement building here in the U.S., particularly language around free prior informed consent standards. And so domestically, the movement is really trying to to shift and take the momentum that has been built, particularly around, you know, the, the, the pipeline struggles and battles, everything, you know, prior to but culminating with Standing Rock and and the encampment, the prayer movement that was created to try to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline going through Lakota territory up in, in Standing Rock. And you, you see like this evolution of us trying to continue to push these federal agencies to hold them more accountable to upholding the rights of Indigenous peoples and this cohesive messaging around needing to evolve out of this era of consultation to a shift towards uh, consent using the free prior informed consent standard. And, you know, there's that we've also had some, some wins in that area, but we have a long way to go before we can fully implement and actualize these rights. All of these oil projects and these pipeline projects and natural gas projects and uranium projects that are all located on indigenous lands are now in a very precarious situation because of the war that is going on and how that's going to affect the global market for energy and the role that the United States is going to want to play in filling those gaps, um, both domestically and internationally, because that pits another uh, a big bullseye on these resources that are located on our near to indigenous lands. Uh, so we have a lot of work to do. Tell us a little bit more about how you all think about navigating that balance between having the right to consent and the need for development of resources. You talked about the war in Ukraine and the pressure that that's going to put on the U.S. energy and extractive sector. And Joan mentioned, you know, that these groups are not by and large opposed, for example, to renewable energy developments. But how do you navigate the need to develop resources like renewable energy with the rights that you all have to make decisions about your land. How does how do you all think about and approach that? Well, the shift that I've done personally from working at the international level with Joanne, IPMG, the Indigenous Peoples Major Group, and the work that was done to develop the Right Energy Partnership, which was structured to develop rights-based approaches to renewable energy development, I think sets a, a great foundation for how to navigate that, that work. And so here domestically, it's really about us actualizing this and implementing it and exercising what these frameworks and protocols need to look like to to center the rights of Indigenous peoples in the decision-making process around renewable energy projects. And taking that framework, as well as the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which, you know, is, is a body of standards that really help us protect our Indigenous worldviews, our languages, our sciences, all the things that are critical for the way that Indigenous peoples take a unique approach to these questions is what, what, you know, that's the package that really helps inform the process that we take as we move forward. So as an example, you know, like renewable energy projects that are Indigenous led often look at everything that has to go into the development of that project. So you don't have very many Indigenous peoples who are unaware that the dependency of renewable energy on lithium batteries also has an impact on other indigenous peoples that are located in and around you know where lithium deposits are and we have we have a huge one here in Nevada and there there are indigenous peoples there who are fighting proposed expansion of that mining and who are heavily impacted by the both the military and the development activities that are taking place in and around that area and so you know as indigenous peoples we don't have the privilege to take a 
myopic approach uh, to these issues. And I think that's part both the challenge and the beauty of Indigenous-led solutions, because it's not just about like, we're like, what are we, what are we going to, uh, how are we going to produce this energy right now for the market? You know, <laughs> like, how are we going to keep costs of gas down? It's really about the entirety of the impact of the, that type of development. And what is our responsibility to our communities now to ensure uh, equity and access, to ensure energy democracy, to ensure that Indigenous rights are protected in our center, but to also ensure that what we are engaging in does not compromise the rights of our future generations and those that are yet to be born. Absolutely. I like that holistic view and thinking beyond, you know, the impacts of a particular project to think about the impacts of the whole system that the project is a part of. Such an important perspective. Joan, back to you. You know, you work with indigenous groups all over the world. And so how are you working with them and thinking about these same kind of systemic issues? How are indigenous groups organizing themselves in defense of their rights and in engaging with these kinds of projects? And how are they thinking about these same interconnections between what's happening in their country and what's happening around the world on indigenous issues? I, I think the, for a lot of, of indigenous uh, peoples, there's just no choice, right? But to defend their land because the land is life. And, and, and that's how it is on the ground when land grabbing is, is, is taking place. So you see this everywhere where there are attempts to grab indigenous people's lands. There are resistance, but again, it's a power dynamics, right? So it's important to also draw uh, alliances and building alliances also with other, other sectors and also getting media attention, for example, to draw broader attention because these are happening in isolation in many parts of the world. They are invisible and we make this, we need to make those struggles visible. And that is why we need to connect local to global, global to local. That's the dynamism that we need to develop because we need global attention to these problems that's are, that are happening on the ground. And at the same time, we need to, to give strength to these communities that are feeling helpless. So solidarity is an important component of the work that we do, because normally communities in isolation feel like they're helpless, that they, they don't have but once they don't have power, but once they see solidarity from others, then they think they're not alone, that they face the same problem with like other communities and that the cooperation and unity that we can build will also strengthen the local struggles. Yeah, so important um, in the context of not just current events and current energy demand, but this broader conversation about climate and the planet and how we best preserve our natural resources. Um, and I think we can all draw a lot more on the expertise and experience of indigenous peoples who have been doing this for thousands of years. But I wanna to shift topics a little bit. And you know, you talked about Joan Global solidarity. I also wanna talk about global risks to indigenous rights defenders. We all know that across the board, human rights defenders are increasingly under threat as a result of their activism and as a result of the democratic decline. This is particularly true for indigenous people. So way back in 2018, which feels like a lifetime ago, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous People called the scale of attack against indigenous human rights defenders a global crisis. Um, and there was a study that back then that found that of the 200 human rights defenders who were killed that year across 24 different countries, which is an extraordinary number, 40% of those were indigenous peoples. 
So what are the strategies that you and, and those you're working with are, are adopting to help protect indigenous defenders who are putting their lives and their livelihoods and their families at risk because of their activism? And what would you like to see governments and companies do to help protect those defenders? Even last year, there's again a rise of, of killings of, of human rights and, and land rights defenders. And again, uh, majority are uh, related to land rights. And I would assume that majority are actually indigenous activists. If we look at the countries where these cases are still happening in Colombia, Brazil, Philippines, these are still the top countries where killings of, of land rights defenders are, are, are taking place. And, and what needs to be done is actually to strengthen the justice system. If those that are committing this are, are getting away with murder, then it, it boldens even and it sends the signal that we are doing that activists are wrong and that if they're killed and there is no justice, then people get used to that, that, that there's nothing wrong with it. Right. And, and so we need to push for effective justice systems, accountability of doing this kind of, of impunity. That's number one. Without accountability and addressing the, the causes of impunity, this will prevail because we will we will remain as enemies from the eyes of the state who does not uh, uphold human rights and pursue their narrow economic interest. That's the wider context we're talking about, right? These are not in isolation. These are power issues. These are, again, the issue of who wants to control our resources. That is the crux of the matter. And so we need to address that. Then how do we protect uh, the, the, the defenders? How to protect the defenders, right? And this is the tricky part, because unless you have the power, then it's, it's more difficult. But nevertheless, what's being done is that, of course, defenders need to take uh, precautions in, in the way you move, the, the use of, of communication facilities that you cannot be, be traced, you cannot be moving around to lessen the threat or, or possible, possible attacks. So, so those can be measures taken by the, by the defenders. But also the human rights defenders need support. One, communication support, like, for example, uh, phone. Right, having a, a a phone and access to internet that is important because then you can contact anyone if 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 there are risks in your life. The way, for example, uh, one of the leaders that we we work with, Sonia Guajajara in Brazil, we need to get her a bodyguard, two bodyguards, because she was directly threatened and she cannot move around. So we have to literally support her to to be provided with bodyguards. That's how bad the situation is, right? But you also don't want your leaders to be crippled because that's exactly the aim, that they cannot do anything. So you have to make adjustments so that they can still do something, yet lessen the, the risk. We have actually established what we call the legal and, legal and sanctuary fund, where we support defenders. So it's, it's a fund that can readily be sent to where it's needed not only individuals, but communities, also communities. And we need to look at the issue of, of land rights defenders as not only individual or leader. These are communities. So 
from the lens of indigenous peoples, when we talk of human rights or land rights defenders, we're not just talking of individuals, we're talking of communities, of villages, of clans, of tribes. Janine, you know, in the United States, we've also seen indigenous groups subject to, to lawsuits, to threats, to online harassment. Tell us about uh, what you see happening to activists here and what are the strategies that groups are adopting to to respond? And then, you know, what would you like to see the U.S. government or companies that are working in these lands do to help better protect these indigenous groups? Absolutely. Uh, You know, I'm glad you asked that question, because a lot of times when we talk about the threats to land rights and human rights defenders, uh, having, you know, the the, the so-called, quote unquote, developed country privilege is leads to people thinking that this is a problem that happens elsewhere, you know, like in, in other places where their governments are not as democratic or as strong. And it completely erases in a very harmful way how so many of those strategies and tactics were seeded and developed here within the United States. You know, like I, as Joanne was was talking, I was just thinking about how much we're still grappling in our movement work with the legacy of Pro tactics with infiltration of by the CIA and the FBI and indigenous rights movements. And this isn't unique to us in the United States, right? You've also seen the same thing in the Black Lives Matter movement. You see the same thing in like any, any people-led movement because those strategies and tactics were birthed here in the United States. And those those agencies and the people responsible for deploying those tactics are still very much well-resourced, well-funded, and well-supported by our government. And so what you see here is this almost, and, and I argued this several times, the level of the United Nations, like what you see is a legalization, the development of legal theory that justifies the criminalization of land rights and human rights defenders here in the United States. And that's why we have so many indigenous land rights defenders that are facing charges right now. Um, The CEO right now of of Indian Collective, Nick Tilson, is still facing charges for a protest that they led uh, to protect their their sacred site, the Black Hills, in the midst of a pandemic um, because a Trump rally was planned there. You know, like, like, and, and <laughs> it was both a, a need to protect their community from the spread of the pandemic, because obviously supporters didn't believe in the pandemic at that time. But it was also their right to protect their, their sacred territory that they've already claimed was wrongfully stolen from their people in court. And so, and, and, and that was proven. And so, you know, those threats and those tactics are still ongoing internally at the individual level, but at the community level, you know, like I said, when you're working within a body of law and, and government and legal structures that are literally rooted and founded upon the theft and the control and possession of indigenous lands, territories, and resources, the threats and the challenges to our sovereignty, our self-determination, and our ability to restore our lifeways is woven into the fabric of our legal and government systems. And so just because it's not as, as visible, it's still there constantly. And even when it is visible, even when it is visible, the whole world saw what happened happened at Standing Rock. You know, the whole world saw these tanks and military men and people with machine guns and private security that were heavily armed, like face off against women, elders, children, unarmed, peaceful, prayerful protesters. And the United States did not get any global, like, you know, (laughs) attention or 
pushback from the global community and or even get asked the question, why is this happening in one of the most so-called quote unquote developed countries in the world that like prides itself on being a human rights champion and constantly intervening using war <laughs> and military strategies and other areas that employ those same tactics against unarmed people. Another less subtle threat that we see globally that is uh, starting to take root here is the repackaging and reframing of indigenous like movements and goals into more acceptable Western frameworks. So you see this with rights of nature framework. You see this with nature-based solutions. And that type of co-optation of what our primary goals were, what indigenous peoples have always been articulating from the beginning as a core part of our movements, a core part of our our, our vision for our futures for ourselves. When it comes appropriated like that into like these non-native led organizations and movements, you see them ignoring all of these ongoing threats and challenges that indigenous peoples are facing. You see them completely erasing the importance of indigenous land rights, indigenous sovereignty and self-determination and building successful and effective and meaningful solutions. And so I, I often like to talk about how like that in itself is a threat as well, no matter how well-meaning the intention may be by those who are, are starting to you know, support that type of movement and call to action. So I want to ask both of you, given the systemic challenges facing Indigenous peoples, the history that you both just eloquently described, the current situation, um, and how, how difficult it is to defend those rights, what is one concrete sort of uh, specific policy change or practice change that you would like to see governments undertake that you think would have an impact on the protection of indigenous people's land rights, um, whether that's the U.S. government or the Tanzanian government. What is one practical step that you think a government could take that would have an impact right now in how indigenous people are treated? Joan, maybe first to you. I think it's important that, that governments uh, have the political will to fully respect and recognize the, the, the rights of indigenous peoples as it is, not just in words, but in action, in clear measures, in budgets, in programs and, and mechanisms. So, so, so those are the elements that we see that will demonstrate the political will, because the, the measurement is how indigenous peoples are exercising our rights as our reality that we are able to manage and secure our lands, practice our traditional occupations, govern ourselves the way we want to govern ourselves, use our resources. You know, this, this is the reality we want, and we want government to respect that. So the first thing they need to do is don't grab, don't grab our resources, leave the resources for us to determine how we want to make use of it. And if they want to make use of it, they need to talk to us and get our consent and be our partner. That's the way it should proceed. It's, it's a respectful relationship. We want a respectful relationship that also recognizes who we are and what we want and also recognize our culture, our identity, and our knowledge, and what we can contribute. Yeah. And unless they change that behavior and make sure that we are also the part of the solution, if not the solution, 
then, you know, the, the situation will not change. So that respectful relationship based on the respect, recognition and protection of our rights is the enabling environment for us to have that meaningful engagement and relationship. Right. Janine, if you found yourself testifying before Congress or with an audience with President Biden, what is the one thing you would ask of them in terms of how they approach this issue? Oh, every time we we have an opportunity to speak with federal agencies, we are constantly pushing the full recognition of the rights of indigenous peoples, particularly in the implementation of practices and protocols that, that like I said earlier, shift us from an era of consultation to one of consent you know, centering the free prior informed consent of indigenous peoples. But I think there's also some really uh, interesting things that have happened under the Biden administration that is being leveraged right now by the indigenous rights movement, particularly around two joint memorandums that have come out of the White House. One joint memorandum comes from the White House Office of Science and Technology and Policy and the White House Council on Environmental Quality. And uh, last November, you know, this memorandum stated a commitment to elevating indigenous traditional ecological knowledge and federal scientific and policy processes. And then we also um, seen a joint memorandum between the USDA and the Department of Interior to collaborate for purposes of increasing tribal co-management of public land. And so it's important because almost all areas of land, you know, involve these federal agencies. And so we need them to to incorporate and practice uh, these standards in all of their engagement with indigenous peoples and normalize it across across their their different departments and their, and their personnel. I think that could go a long way because when you to to center and normalize those standards. It's automatically built into that effort is both acknowledging the legacy of injustice and how, you know, our structures and systems of power perpetuate that legacy. And then and it, it, it facilitates that shift to what needs to happen in order to really center and restore tribal leadership and knowledge systems and practices over the management of our, our natural resources. And right now, you know, there's a co-management plan that's being developed with tribes in Lakota and Dakota territory to talk about and, and create a pathway forward for truly returning the Black Hills for the people that it was stolen from under a co-management process and structure that allows us, because it's not, it's about, not about land ownership, right? When we talk about land back, you know, some aspects of it may absolutely mean demarcating and ensuring through law, you know, what those land rights are. But for Indigenous peoples, like that's not the end goal. Our, our end goal is to restore our relationship to our lands to restore those practices that allow us to take care of, to use it and, and, and sustainably. And in this era that we're in, having to deal with both the legacy of environmental contamination, the devastating impacts of just generations of uh, extractive uh, industries in our territories and man-made climate change, a lot of times that means in, in these areas, we have to give back more than what we take. And so what you're seeing the development of a new, a new framework and a a new ideology around what conservation even means and what management of these resources even means holding you know that that whole reality that we're facing but also um, continuing to center and hold you know what our core values are as indigenous peoples our natural laws our original instructions um, as we like to call them and restoring those responsibilities in a way that isn't just about money <laughs> isn't just about development it's really about protecting the safety 
protecting the sacred and recognizing that we all have a responsibility in doing that and that when we do it well, we all benefit from it. Thank you both so much for being here and for keeping this issue on our radar and in the public's attention and for all the work that you are doing uh, on behalf of Indigenous peoples everywhere. Um, Thank you so much for being with us today. More information on these issues can be found on this episode's webpage at www.csis.org slash podcasts slash intersections. Follow the Human Rights Initiative on Twitter at CSIS Human Rights. If you like what you just heard, click subscribe. See you soon.